Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapun. This is another on the road episode. And today I'm at Asset School with um, former head of school, Paul Singer. Paul, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. So Paul, I want to start with um, your history, going all the way back to when you were a little kid. Um, and I've read um, some material online about how um, you were a different learner back when you were a child. Um, so can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and what school was like when you first started going to school? Sure. I grew up in Southern California. I went to all local Los Angeles public schools. Um, originally, my family came from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, came across country when I was about three years old did the preschool thing in LA and then started kindergarten at a local public school. Um, you said I was a different kind of learner. I, I guess I was a different kind of learner because school from the very beginning was a struggle for me. And I can't tell you exactly why, but it just was. Um, by the time I was through with kindergarten, I literally had a, a relative, an uncle, who was a newspaper writer in Cincinnati write an article about me because in those days we would get report cards and get grades and pen, uh, printing and math and beginning reading. And we also got grades in something called quiet resting, meaning what did we do when it was time to take a nap? I napped. I got an A in quiet resting, but that was the only A I got. Wow. And he used that to write a newspaper article about me. And I've looked back at that article a few times. And in that article, he mentions the fact that I have two older sisters. And he says, it's obvious at age five that Paul is not going to be the scholastic hotshot of his two older sisters. So obviously, the adults in my life at that time were not seeing the spark that they were looking for in a young child or a young learner that they were accustomed to seeing from my sisters. Um, and to me, I look back and I say, well, they didn't understand some of the developmental differences between boys and girls and the fact that boys kind of do lag behind a little bit. But again, going through kindergarten, first grade, second grade, by second grade, I recognized that I was always in the lowest group because we were grouped homogeneously. So whether it was reading, whether it was math, all of my friends, because of the, which were neighborhood kids that I hung out with, were always in other groups. I was never with them. And I started to assume it was because they were simply smarter than I was. So those feelings of inferiority started really early, low self-esteem, that sort of thing, and undermined my either desire or my willingness to make the effort that was necessary to try and succeed at school because I knew that I just couldn't do it. I focused on what I was good at, recess, football, baseball, basketball, which carried through all of my schooling. I, I, I joke about it sometimes that if schools didn't offer sports, I probably would have been a very early dropout. That's what kept me going and eligibility guidelines. So you had to maintain, you know, a certain grade point, three, uh, uh, 2.0. Couldn't get more than one U in citizenship. When I was in middle school, I got all U's in citizenship because... You meaning? You meaning unsatisfactory, meaning mm -hmm. this kid acts out. Right. S smart aleck. Um, it's funny, I, I have a... I had a grandmother, an old Eastern Polish woman with a heavy Polish accent who loved me unconditionally. And uh, I remember my dad showing her my eighth grade report card, which was... A bit, it was C's, D's, and F's, and all unsatisfactories in behavior. And she looked at the report card, and she looked over at my dad, and she said, what's wrong with those teachers? Mm. Which, I, which me, it was like, wow, Grandma loves me so much. It felt great. And I've said to people all the time that every child deserves to have at least one person in their life that has that kind of unconditional love. Not just unconditional love, but she saw something in me and couldn't understand why others didn't see the same thing. What was it that she was seeing in you? She saw a highly capable individual. She saw somebody that she thought was brilliant, um, funny, creative. 
kind. When, when you mean capable, right, those qualities, the, the kindness, the compassion, that sort of thing. But when you mean capable, did she see evidence that, for example, you were a problem solver or a critical thinker or, but outside of the traditional uh, process of education, did she, did she see that happening with you? Actually, your guess is as good as mine, because I was a young boy. And she died when I was probably 15 or 16 years old. And I've never, I didn't have conversations like that with her. Like, Grandma, you know, this is great. What is it that you see in me? Um, I just felt the, the support and this um, confidence. Hmm. She was just certain. Um, she used to say how excited she was about my future. Things like that. Right. And I would think, what future? And, but she would always say, don't listen to what people are saying. Don't listen to what, don't listen to them. Right. What's, so yeah. we, we, we might imagine that any child um, outside of the family realm would um, benefit from an, a, a trusting adult in school who feels the way that your grandma felt. It needs to be real. It needs to be authentic. Absolutely. So when kids, did, kids are incredibly intuitive, they can see through phoniness. Right. They know when teachers are giving them false praise. When did reading kind of, when did you become aware that the reading issue was an issue, at least in the traditional sense of progressing through levels of reading? I faked it through most of elementary school. I was a beginning reader at fifth grade. And uh, my parents at that point recognized that the, there was something going on and they started getting various levels of, of intervention. At UCLA, there was near um, uh, University Elementary School, where Madeline Hunter used to be, Seeds, I think it was. Right. Next door, there was a place called the Fernald Clinic, which was a special ed center. Right. I would go there for summer school, and I'd have interve- you know reading intervention there. I went to a place called the Valley Reading Center, my parents found, which they were doing things in the late 1950s and early 60s that we've been doing in assets for 65 years. They were using Morton Gillingham in those days. It was, you know, in fun for me to come to assets and I looked in the classroom and said, oh my God, this stuff looks familiar. Right. It's the stuff that opened the doors for me. There was no assets, but I was fortunate enough, and most kids aren't, to have parents with means who could look in every direction imaginable to try and find whatever interventions were out there to give me some help. Right. So through elementary school, middle school, high school, and eventually you graduate from high school, what was that experience like? Miserable. Miserable. Absolutely miserable. And what made it um, miserable? That, uh, this is, it's difficult to articulate, but that feeling of dumbness, feeling that I'm going nowhere. So, you know, I had these unrealistic expectations and beliefs for myself. I just convinced myself that I was going to be a professional baseball player. And so from, from sixth grade on, um, if anybody said, you know, what's your future look like? You're going to be a dentist like your dad. I said, no, no, I'm going to be a baseball player. Mm. And I believed that all the way into my freshman year of college, which was a community college because I couldn't go to any four-year university because of my grades. Um, and I played baseball my freshman year. But I also realized during that year that these guys, they were all getting better and better at each level. And I wasn't. I went about as far as I could go. I'm proud of the fact that I made it on a freshman team at a community college, but I wasn't going beyond that. And my mother was my backbone my freshman year, my junior year in college, just as she was all through high school. She would sit with me, help me with assignments. She would edit my papers, um, not criticize them, but edit them and sit with me and say, what are you trying to say here? And I'd verbally express it to her and she'd say, well, let's look at what you said and what you just told me. And let's try and get what you just said on paper. Because what you said, you said beautifully. When you wrote it down, it didn't come out the same way. She wouldn't criticize it, but she would say it very tactfully. Mm -hmm. And freshman software, it was probably my junior year in college before I really started taking off on my own. And why did it happen then? Or what happened? I had a sociology class. Oh. called Sociology of Sexuals. And I had a professor that I thought was incredibly interesting. I had to write a paper in that class. I had to do a little research paper. And I was selling shoes at J.C. Penney's at that time. Wow, really? Part-time. Mm-hmm. 
I used to tell people I worked at a fancy place called Jacques Penet. <laughs> they'd say, I've never heard of that. And I said, well, some people call it J.C. Penny. And I wrote a paper called Sit Like a Lady, which was in the subtitle was a sociological look at the life of a shoe salesman. And I was looking at gender stereotypes by the types of shoes parents would select for their children. And I had fun with it. And it's the first time I ever did anything for school that I actually had fun with. I had a glossary in the back with pictures of shoes. I made a shoe dictionary. I remember there used to be a thing called a saddle shoe. I called it a bisexual saddle shoe because it could go either way, buy it for girls or boys. And my professor called me and asked me to go to her office, come see her in her office. And I, I was very nervous because I was convinced that she was going to tell me that I completely messed up on this paper and was going to have to redo the whole thing. And she called me in and, and told me that she thought the paper was publishable. Wow. And I said, I reacted the way you just did, basically. Wow. Okay, let's publish it. Well, you're going to have to do some rewriting. And I said, well, am I going to get an A in the paper without the rewriting? She goes, you've got, you're going to get an A in the paper. It's phenomenal. But you have to rewrite it by following certain guidelines in order to submit it for publication. I said, if I'm getting an A, that's good enough. I was too lazy. I said, I don't, I don't want to publish it. So I didn't. But I left there thinking, I can do this. I did that one on my own and pulled it off. And I, simply because it tapped into an area that seemed interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And what, by the way, that caused me to, to change my major from physical education to sociology and just pursue my own passions, which was um, equity, justice, social class differences, social class, eventually social class influences on learning. Right. Um, things of that nature. And I, I pursued it with a vengeance. And I had a professor friend who um, I would kind of consult with. He was a very, very close friend, became a very, very close friend. And he was the one that one day sat down and I was working at a place called Five Acres in Altadena, California, which is a residential facility for boys between the ages of eight and 12. I lived there four and a half days a week. And I'm a young guy living there. And I was sitting with my professor friend and I said, I have no life and uh, I, I don't have an apartment, I can't date, I mean, I, you know, what kind of a life living there four and a half days of the week? He says, you've got a natural instinct for kids, you've got to get a degree in education. Wow. And I said, I can't, I don't think I could get into graduate school. I don't think my, because my undergraduate grades were, were okay, but not graduate quality. This is where you can get into the topic of white privilege. Because all I know from that point is that two, three, four weeks later, I got a letter from the university without applying, saying you've been conditionally accepted into the master's program. And conditional meaning I had to get through the first year with a 3.0. What he did, I have no idea. And that's the same program that three years later, I was teaching in. So I went from that 1.9 at my high school graduation, six years later, I was teaching in a state university. Um, but I had a lot of support along the way and people that were just, I was lucky. So I want to ask about like two, I know it sounds kind of weird to hindsight is twenty twenty, And sometimes when we look back on our distant past, we construct stories that might not necessarily be true, but we want them to be true in the moment. So looking back to those years, were you aware that what was happening was coaching, that your success depended on intimate coaching from your mother or other individuals? Um, and did, did, if that were true, that that was going to inform where you went later in terms of your education and your I, education I leadership? I love that question. I had no awareness. I, I wasn't. And in fact, what I really wondered is what the heck did they see in me? Mm. Um, one of those mentors was a high school English teacher who became the Dean of Students. And here we are today, 51 years later. I was in Los Angeles a month ago and we hung out together. Um, he walked into class one day with a book and he walked up, you know, those days we all sat in rows and he just dropped a book on my desk and said, you might like this. And just went to the front of the room and started teaching. I was always intimidated by the guy. I thought he was one of the most brilliant people I'd ever met. 
And I was sure he was going to find out that I was one of the dumbest people on campus. And what was that going to mean? And he gave me a book. And the book was? It was very age appropriate. It was a book called Your Turn to Curtsy, My Turn to Bow by William Goldman, who's the same guy that did uh, Marathon Man, became right. a movie hit, and a book called Boys and Girls Together. And this book was so age appropriate. And how he figured me out, I don't know, but it was about a 15-year-old kid. I was 15 at the time. They went off to a summer camp as a CIT, a counselor in training. And he had his first, he lost his virginity at camp with an older woman who was 17. And that's what the book was about, but I couldn't put it down. Right. <laughs> I thought it was the most exciting thing I'd ever read. Right. And next thing I know, the guy became dean of students. So I got to know him intimately well because I, had, I was kicked out of classes constantly and sent to his office. And one day I was sitting in his office and he says, Singer, what are you doing Friday night? And my answers at that stage of my life would be, huh? I don't know. And he said, my wife and I are in a bind. Can you come babysit for our kids? I'm thinking, why the hell? He wants me to babysit for his kids? So I said, yes. And that was the beginning of now a 51-year-old friendship. Wow. Um, his oldest kid's probably 40 years old now. I, one of them was four years old, one of them was two years old, and then he had another one a few years later. And I would sit in his house, and he had this fireplace, and it was surrounded with bookshelves, nothing but books. I started looking at the books and thinking, I need to, like, look at the covers, do something, so I can talk to him about these books so he doesn't find out how stupid I am. Mm, right. And I'd pick up something like Catching the Rye. And I'd look at the back and read all it. So when he and his wife would come home, I'd say, oh, I see you have Catcher in the Rye. Oh, I read that book. Right. Even though I hadn't read the book. But that conversation would cause me to leave and go get the book and read it. Right. Because I didn't want, his name was Dan. I didn't want Dan to find out that I was a fraud, mm. that I was faking it. And I started reading. Um, so it was a huge, huge Wow, that's place. amazing. Yeah. I had a, a teacher at Punahou School where I went to high school. Um, I did not have a reading issue. I was actually a pretty heavy reader right from the from a very young age. But he sensed something about me and the way I saw the world. And he gave me Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown. Wow, powerful book. Very powerful book. Yeah. And it, it, wow, my life sort of flipped on a dime at, yeah. at that point. So those moments are remarkable moments in people's lives. So I want to ask, um, <clears throat> fast forwarding a little bit into your graduate work um, and the degrees that you obtained. Um, so to what extent did that graduate work ultimately inform your work later as an educator and an education leader? Significantly. My first master's degree was in social and philosophical foundations of education. And the gentleman, my professor friend, he was in that department. That, and that's the department that I took the master's in. And the readings that I did, uh, the studies that I did, the professors that I had in that department, it was all stuff that I just inhaled. I loved it. It made sense. It seemed relevant at the time. And then a couple of names jumped out that just grabbed me. And I ended up reading and if they were still writing, I'd still be reading everything, like Jonathan Kozel, who did Death at an Early Age, and Savage Inequalities, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, and I wanted to make a difference. Um, I still want to make a difference, but uh, I'm discouraged today. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at what's happening nationally in our country, I view it as sort of an indictment of our educational system that we've allowed this country to get to a place where it is, where we're seeing democracy beginning to slip through our fingers. Mm. And I think that as educators, we have to hold up a mirror to ourselves and say, what have, we, what have we done? I think what I'm really interested in is this process where you come to relevancy, where you understand that what you're working on is relevant and that as a person, you sort of flip out of irrelevancy into relevancy. Mm -hmm. and I, and what you're describing to me is a moment where everything suddenly seemed to become very relevant and then you say you started to inhale what everything that was coming at you. I realized, I looked at the people around me in graduate school and I realized I could hold my own with them. Mm. I went in intimidated and I, I can't tell you the exact moment, I can't tell you exactly where that epiphany came from, but one day I realized I can handle any of these guys mm -hmm. and I can debate with them, I, I, I get it. 
And in fact, some of these guys, I don't think they're very sharp. And it just, somewhere I, along the way, I just felt I could hold my own. And I had a similar experience. I went back and got my undergraduate more than 15 years after I graduated from high school. Um, and I remember very clearly I decided to go to the University of Iowa for reasons that are beyond the pale of this podcast. But um, By because I'm my professor friend. Yeah. His undergraduate was at the University of Iowa. Right. He grew, up on a farm. he grew up on a farm in Iowa. In Iowa, right. Yeah. So I did, I did my, I finished my undergraduate at the University of Iowa, but I was already in my 30s. And I remember at that point, I suddenly sort of became very anxious about the idea that I was going to be facing up these hotshot kids coming out of high school. And I thought I would get run over by them. And it, it turned out to be just the opposite, that I was a extremely motivated student in my 30s at that point. I was paying my own tuition and I was just absorbing knowledge like a sponge, to use the cliche. And so what I'm interested in is the idea that... Um, we can move the timeline of relevancy up even to maybe it's already the case for kindergartners and first graders and second graders. In other words, we don't want to wait until much later in adulthood for you to, to flip into relevancy. You want to actually be working on what's relevant very early on. Right. And that's part of, it sounds like the work that you're doing as you move forward uh, well, as an education leader. Yeah. Early, the key is early intervention. But it's it's not a simple key, and it's not a it's not just um, something that's going to happen in individual classrooms. Um, one of my first teaching jobs was at a school called Murchison Street School, which is in East Los Angeles, right by County USC Medical Center. I would sit in the faculty lounge at that school, and hear teachers make a lot of very very derogatory comments about the kids and the parents. Right. The school was one hundred percent Latino. Those days, it was Chicano. Um, and all of the students lived across the street from the school in these projects called Ramona Gardens. So I started asking, you know, what's the big deal? What is it about these people they don't like? And they said, well, they don't care. They don't love their kids. They don't care about education. They, they don't care about social mobility. They're, gonna, they're in these projects. Their kids will be in these projects. Nothing's ever going to change. How do you know? Nobody comes back to school night. So there was another teacher there, a guy named Eric, that I became friends with. We decided to hold a back-to-school night in the projects, not at the school. Potluck. Hmm. Truth of the matter is, it was his idea. I'm just patting myself on the back for saying, good idea, Eric. Right. It wasn't really my idea. Yep. So we decided to do this. The whole faculty said, you guys are crazy. You're going to get killed. You're going to do a nighttime back-to-school night event in the projects. You're going to get stabbed. You're going to get shot. And he said, well, we'll see. So we, we found one parent that basically agreed to have it in front of her residence there in the projects. Hunt for, from two classes, 100% turnout. Wow. We broke bread together, we drank beer together, actually drank a lot of beer together. We talked and we spent most of the night listening. And we left unscathed and we looked at one another and we realized we had just met with a group of people who loved their kids as much or more than any families any parents we'd ever met want their kids out of those projects, want their kids to experience social mobility, maybe not in the same sense as a middle-class parent who, who, you know, where the father is an accountant and wants his kid to be a surgeon or something. These kids, success meant, to these parents, success meant living outside the projects and being able to support themselves. Pay rent. Uh, but they wanted them out. So what was the problem? The problem was they didn't trust the school. They didn't see this. They saw this cold kind of bureaucratic structure and they didn't see the teachers or the administrator or the administrators as advocates for their children. And they thought we were because we came and had dinner and drank beer with them and just listened. It was interesting. We suddenly became part of that almost felt like family. And to this day, I seriously, I have never seen a culture of people love that love their kids more. Mm. And I can imagine that they were also thinking that the school um, wasn't helping their kids in, in the relevancy sense. In other words, the curriculum or the learning that they were doing wasn't necessarily relevant to their lives. We had to create our own curriculum. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. 
putting you know a fourth grade Latino kid that's raised in the projects and giving them a textbook where they're reading about family, a family picnic at the beach. These kids have never seen the beach. Right. We did what we did. We, remember Polaroid cameras? We we got permission to take a field trip through the projects. And whatever the kids told us to take pictures of, we took pictures of. And we had little tape recorders and we record what they were saying. And we went back and created a book. That we literally just stapled the pages together. We'd have a picture on top and then statements by the kids. And we would sneak in, because this is how we got the principal's permission to do this walking field trip. There was a, a word list called the Dolch word list that educators, you know, words that kids are supposed to know at certain ages of their development. We'd sneak in some of those words from mm-hmm. one place, from place time to time. And uh, the kids all wanted to read. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't, they loved reading, but it had relevance to them and they could relate to it. And they loved the pictures and they went and they said, yeah, Jorge, this is what happened to Jorge. And I remember when he, got, he had to get stitched up because he fell in that field and got wrist sliced. And mm-hmm. you know, they talked about the things and they were excited about reading. And we were able to use that as an opportunity to begin in baby steps, exposing them to other types of literature, but very gradually. What year was this? This was 1970. Early 70s, 73. So this feels like a very early example of ed tech coming into play. You have Kodak camera, yeah. right? And you've got recorders <laughs> and you're actually using it in the service of trying to mirror for the kids what's happening in their lives their to help lives. them yeah. understand the relevancy of their yeah. own lives. That's, yeah. that's why really are you telling me to take a picture of that? Right. And they tell us why, why they want that picture. Right. And that's what they end up reading about. And these are essential questions to them. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. These, are, these were um, fourth and fifth graders. Right. So I'm going to skip forward a little bit now. Um, you spent 30 years as the head of school at the country school in Los Angeles. Close to 30. Yeah. Close to 30. That's a long time uh, sure to be is. at one place. Um, talk to us about what the country school is and what were some of the things that you accomplished along the way that were meaningful to you in terms of education? Okay. The country school, country school is a great place. It's a progressive school. And that's what attracted me to it. Um, I was working as a director of a for-profit school. And by the way, awfully young. I mean, when I started a country school, I was 28 years old as the head of that school. And I had already been working two years as the director of a private school for-profit. Very traditional place. I wear a shirt and tie every day. Um, and I got a call from a woman who was a teacher at the country school that had been a, a, a colleague of mine in graduate school. And she said, we're looking for a head of school here. And your, your approach to education, your philosophy of education, you'd fit right in. So I threw my hat into the ring. Um, it, it was difficult. I, because I, They didn't want to hire me. They thought I was too young. And I was ready to give up because the process lasted several months. And I remember one night saying, if I don't get a call in the next day or two, I'm just going to withdraw my nomination, stay put. They called and offered me the job, and I was lucky because there was one individual on that board who apparently was pretty influential, and he was the vice president of a big Fortune 500 company called Baker Hughes, Mm -hmm. which came about as a merger. It was Baker Oil and Hughes Aircraft, and they had this huge company. And he told that board, he said, if you don't hire him, I'm hiring him, and I'm going to make him our vice president of human resources, and I will educate him along the way, and this kid's going to be... He saw something. Wow. And he convinced them to hire me. He was channeling your grandmother. Yeah, he was. In a way. And uh, so they offered me the job. Right. I wanted the job because of the per- because it was a school with a philosophy of education. But when I got there, the philosophy was wonderful. But it was a school of all white kids, all affluent kids, and that bothered me. And I remember thinking... That's not my concept of progressive education. So with the board's consent, I went about trying to desegregate that school um, racially, socioeconomically. The socioeconomic piece was the hardest because you're looking at building, you know, raising money for financial aid. What happened at that time, once we got to a place where Students of color reached somewhere close to 30% in any given classroom. We experienced white flight. 
which was incredibly disillusioning for me because I was in a liberal, progressive Hollywood school. And I remember an old folk singer from the 60s, Phil Oaks, who once defined liberals by saying, a liberal is a person who's 10 degrees to the left of center in good times and 10 degrees to the right of center when affected personally. When these folks suddenly saw too much color, they started saying, are you lowering the standards of the school? Right. We weren't. It was very disillusioning. Um, but we built it, and we, we had some white flight, but we built it back up. Today, the country school is probably 40% students of color, um, probably 40% or higher students on financial assistance. It's, it's, it's a, I think it's a model of inclusion and diversity. That's the thing I'm most proud of. Um, in terms of progressive educational ideology, I didn't do as much as I think I could have. Um, so I, I kind of chose my priorities. There's still some traditional aspects to the school pedagogically that I think need to be looked at. Um, but again, you pick your battles. And, and diversity is a tremendous accomplishment. For me, it was huge. Right. You know, there was a, we received some kind of a, you know, proclamation from the city council and the city councilman came out, out to the school on the school's anniversary and he literally got up and he said, the country school is a model of diversity and inclusion in Los Angeles. Wow. And that was a private school. Right. Um, so that was cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Paul about when he arrived at Asset School in Honolulu, Hawaii. We'll be right back. Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Hey everybody, we're back. We're with Paul Singer, who's the former head of school at Assets here in Honolulu. Paul, you came to Assets in 2008. Why did you come to Assets? I came to Assets because I was an Assets kid, primarily. I didn't know Assets existed before I came here. Um, as you know, I was at the country school. Um, in 2006, I believe, I went to a retreat in Santa Barbara, California for heads of schools. And the executive director of the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools happened to have been there, Robert Witt. And one morning, a whole group of school heads got together and kind of played hooky from the retreat because we had workshops and things. And we went off golfing. I had a little name tag on my shirt. And Robert Witt walked up to me on the golf course, extended his hand very nicely and said, Paul Singer, how do we get you to Hawaii? I looked at him, I said, I think you have me mixed up with somebody else. He says, no, are you the Paul Singer from the country school? And I said, I am. And he said, I want to talk to you about coming to Hawaii. So Robert and I started talking and he shared with me um, what he knew about Asset School. It kind of piqued my interest, but at that time, after so many years at the country school, my intent was to stay there until I was ready to retire. People thought I owned the school. I have to realize it's a small school. When I actually gave notice, some of the vendors called me and said, did you sell the place? Mm. And I had to say, no, I just worked there. Right. So Robert introduced me to a search consultant that the school had hired, Roger Bass. Roger convinced me to come here and interview. I went to the University of Hawaii and met with a search committee. And uh, they sent me to the school to take a look around. And I visited, been a day talking to kids, talking to teachers, sitting in the classrooms. And I was touched because I saw, that time the entire K-12 was on one campus, and I saw 350-odd kids that just reminded me of myself. 
And, and this was many, many years after your childhood, obviously. And when you say you, you are an assets kid, what does that mean? I was a cookie cutter. Um, and our kids, we don't have cookie cutter kids at this at assets. Um, but I was okay. I didn't know I was okay. And I needed to discover that on my own. Fortunately, you know, I was fortunate enough to have wonderful individuals in my life on the, along the way that helped me in that process of self-discovery. But I, mm-hmm. I, I, did, I would have loved, I think, to have had an assets experience. And I feel that way today. Um, I look at what goes on in this high school and these cool kids, they're so bright. Um, I don't put myself in that gifted category, but we've got kids here. I just found out yesterday that our robotics team is just ranked third in the state. Right. This little school that nobody knows anything about. Um, and uh, um, it was emotional for me. I remember getting on the plane to go home. I was At the time I was married, I ultimately got divorced. But, and I said to my wife, God, I hope they offer me the job. And her response was, but you said you didn't want to come? You didn't want the job. It was just going to be a free trip to Hawaii. I did say that. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I told her, I said, they're never going to hire me. They're never going to hire me. And I left saying, God, I hope they hire me. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be involved in this place. So I have a question. This, this might be a complex and maybe a hard question. But over the course of these podcast interviews that I've done, especially the on-the-road interviews, um, I felt this sense of concern rise up in me as I've heard people use language around education. And so I want to zero in a little bit for a second on when you talk about cookie cutter. So one of the things that worries me is that when we start talking about, let's say, for example, authentic versus um, not authentic education, or we talk about deeper learning versus what has to be then called shallow learning. And when you talk about cookie cutter versus non cookie cutter. I worry that we're painting with broad brushes and that all those kids over there who might be listening, who are like, well, I go to a school and I guess I'm a cookie cutter, how they might react to something like that. Thank you. That's a good, good point. A good question. I don't mean it in an offensive way. I mean that, um, there are kids that are just wired differently. And so I say not cookie cutter, uh, not in a, in a way to say that kids can't be creative thinkers, can't be original, can't be artistic, and attend more um, traditional schools or more, quote, mainstream schools. Um, but we just have a group of kids that are wired differently. So I want to talk a little so bit they, more about this, but let's just take a second to make sure that we understand what assets is. So what is assets mission? What, 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 it, what was its mission or it, what is its mission as you were the head of school for the number of years that you were? And who's the population that it serves? Just so we know exactly okay. what the context um, is. Number one, I have not altered the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a school that serves kids that have been diagnosed as gifted or, or dyslexic or gifted and dyslexic or kids with other language-based learning challenges. So there's kids that are dysgraphic, things like that. Any kid that's diagnosed with dyslexia risks some comorbid condition. About 50% of them, right off the bat, 50% of them will be dyslexic and ADHD. Um, Sometimes you get kids that are oppositional. Those kids don't, those kids require something very special and an enormous amount of talent. Gifted kids, you're often dealing with kids of high anxiety, generalized anxiety disorders. One of the most challenging populations I've ever worked with is highly gifted adolescent girls Mm. who have have trouble fitting into any social circles and exhibit all too often self-destructive behaviors. It's scary and it's sad. Cutters, mm-hmm. um, suicidal ideations, things like that. It's a unique, unique population. And it's a different population than a traditional kid who's a straight-A student. So I just want to zero in for our listeners. What exactly do you mean by gifted? Well, the first, the first test of that giftness, giftedness is IQ. I mean, these kids are kids with IQs. Some of them are off the charts. Um, but IQ doesn't mean good student. 
Um, it doesn't mean fitting into a classroom setting, but their, their innate intelligence is off the charts. The other areas that we now look at are giftedness in specific areas. There's kids that are gifted in the arts and they, they can look, they see the world just diff through the eyes of, in a different way than others. And they create incredible things that are gifts to all of us, gifts to humanity in general. Um, and, to, and sometimes that gets squelched in a more traditional school setting. What is it that makes it more difficult for these kids to succeed in more traditional school settings? Um, we, it doesn't mean that they can't succeed eventually. I mean, our line sometimes, we just got to get them to college. Right. Because they'll have more academic freedom there and more opportunities to pursue their passions there. The schools, I think, have fallen short of looking for opportunities to provide kids to pursue their passions. Mm. And I think that would be a great benefit to all schools. Quite honestly, I think if schools really operated the way they should, could negate the need for an assets. Um, you know, if they were more personalized. You know, unfortunately, schools are businesses. So there's economics that are involved. There's public relations that are involved. But if schools could have the student-teacher ratio that this school has, if schools could have the emphasis on uh, student autonomy, student ownership over their own learning, with teachers really truly, in the almost in the words of John Dewey, being research project directors, right. um, not just kind of drilling holes in their heads and trying to pour in information and then testing, having them regurgitate it on a test and never use it again. Uh, I think if schools really did things in a relevant way to the kids, probably wouldn't need to have an asset. So that begs the question then that, that assets, um, and it, it by any measure, assets has been quite successful. I mean, now you have a second campus, you've moved your high school um, off of the original campus and now it has its own campus and you've got um, extensive plans for the um, development of assets as a school. I think it begs the question about how assets can inform the greater education community, public, private, and charter, about ways that we can redesign education to make it more possible for all of the gifts that every kid has to come to the surface for them to pursue their passions. Well, the first is through teacher training and doing as much of that as possible. And we do have an outreach program. It's not as large as I think it should be, and, and I'd like to see it grow. Um, the other obstacle, though, that is a little more difficult to, to articulate, there are a lot of teachers out there who, unfortunately, only want to work with easy kids. And kids that are true challenges for them, they just assume not have them around. And a lot of our kids are not easy. So by They're easy, you mean... Easy, easy, easy along with compliant. No um, no diagnoses. They just, they, they have regular reading level, regular understanding level. They move through the system. They're the teachers, that, they're the kids of teachers like to say, good Paul, look how nicely Paul's behaving. Mm, right. What a sweet boy. He always gets his work in on time. Right. They love kids like that. And they're wonderful kids. I have nothing against them. But there are teachers that just don't want to work with this population. And they're in all schools. And some are in those schools because they don't want to work with these types of kids. Right. So it seems like professional development has sort of two challenges ahead. One is to train teachers to actually do the kinds of things that are necessary to make it possible for kids with these various elements of their lives to succeed, right? And then on the other hand, it's actually changing a mindset where everybody is um, it's an it's an equity thing where everybody feels the the necessity to include all learners in their classrooms. In other words, they're exactly. not defaulting exactly. to the easy. You like being a physician and saying, "I only want to work with the following types of clients." Right. And that, I, I, whatever this one's ailments are, let some other doctor handle it. I don't want to deal with that stuff. Mm -hmm. No, they embrace a profession, and the challenge and the excitement of watching the kid that may come to them with feelings of alienation and despair um, and anger sometimes and watching them progress to a place where they're optimistic and they see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's very exciting. I remember I, I taught at Iolani for four years, uh, 2010 to 2014. And I remember um, feeling a sort of sense of, of wonder. Like I, I was like, wow, I'm noticing that a lot of these types of kids that 
um, might go to assets or previously to Academy of the Pacific, um, that they were showing up in these classrooms. And I thought, hmm, the private schools here might be waking up to the idea that it's important to address these kids' needs. Do you think that that's happening? Is that, to what extent is that happening? Not enough? Channel worms jobs. Yeah. I, I do I, think it's happening. Right. Not to the extent that it needs to, but you have to look at why it's happening. And I'm not 100% sure it's always happening out of a altruistic, you know, decision to do right educationally by by whatever range of learners schools are working with. Mm -hmm. I think that there's economic right. reasons that it's happening. Enrollment Demographic issues. changes going on. Right. Um, applicant pools declining. So schools are suddenly willing to take kids that they weren't willing to take five years ago. Right. There's a lot of, and they're saying, well, if we're going to take them, we have a moral obligation to find a way to, to you know, make this experience for them as positive as possible. Right. Right. So I think there's other factors. So do you feel hopeful as we move forward into 2020? That... I do. I feel hopeful because of my involvement with HAIS and the school heads that I've met through HAIS are some of the... HAIS is the Hawaii the, Association sorry, of Independent Schools. The Hawaii Schools. Association of mm -hmm. Independent Schools. And I'm the current president of the board. And there are heads of schools out there that I have met that I think are amazing educators. How much influence they can have on their institutions and how fast that influence will trickle down, I don't know. But I know their hearts and their minds are in the right place. Mm. Some good people run in these schools. That's awesome. Um, so Paul, we're almost at the end of our time here. Um, so I wanna ask, I wanna finish by doing two things. I wanna ask two things. One is the question about this concept of public-private partnerships. And um, do you have any specific examples that come to mind um, that really kind of illustrate the best of these kinds of public-private partnerships? At the country school, mm -hmm. we had a partnership with Burbank Boulevard Elementary School, which was the school I attended growing up. And it was within walking distance of the country school. Right. And it had, just because of the demographic shifts in the community, it had become a low-income school. They had things that we needed, like an auditorium, mm. where we could hold plays, we could have assemblies, we could do all kinds of things. We had a tech lab. They didn't have a sophisticated tech program at the school. We set up a program where we could walk over to that campus with our entire student population, with some portion of it, for assemblies and use their auditorium and things like that. And their kids would walk to our campus and get um, computer technology instruction. Right. And, and so it was reciprocal. Most of the problems I see with public-private partnerships, they are private schools patting themselves on the back, saying, look what good we're doing. And there are public schools that sometimes resent that. And they don't see that a partnership works both ways. So I think it's important if we're going to talk about public-private partnerships, we have to say, what do they have to offer to us? That's number one because they do have something to offer. All of the schools have something to offer. And we have to really, sometimes you have to dig at for what that might be. But the other thing is, and this is where Jonathan Kozel comes up. I, I, the inequalities in our American educational system are just getting worse and worse. And although I'm deeply involved with the Hawaii private school community, I'm a strong, strong believer and supporter of public education and believe that if we don't do something in a big way to make sure public schools aren't uh, up to par, it's a real threat to our democracy. And I do get discouraged sometimes because I hear educators, I read articles in newspapers about wonderful things happening, mostly in private schools. Um, who are serving predominantly privileged kids and going out of their ways to provide those kids with more and more privilege all the time. Um, and there is some wonderful things happening in public schools that are being overlooked. Right. And that saddens me. Right. I don't think they're getting a fair shake. Right. And that's actually part of the mission of this podcast series is to bring some of those stories up to light um, so that people can hear about it. So it's a, a great segue, Paul, to the last question, which is, Inspired by the title of Ted Dintersmith's book, What School Could Be, um, which inspired this podcast series. So um, to you, Paul, what could school 
Vinny. <laughs> I go back to John Dewey. I think school needs to be life itself and a reflection of life itself as opposed to a preparation for life. School's there to prepare you. Um, there's a part of me that wish, wishes kids could all live at school and it could be a working farm or a working whatever and everybody would have a job. Um, I, I think schools need to be places that strive to seek out ways to satisfy kids' innate intellectual curiosities, whatever they may be, and not always put it in, bo in boxes. You know, that, you know, when you're in fourth grade, you have to study California fourth grade is California missions. Fifth grade is U.S. history. And if you're going to study U.S. history, how about taking a look at U.S. history in as real and an authentic way as possible? Um, I always use an example of a fifth grade class that I visited one time that was had a trial going on. And the trial was that they were trying Christopher Columbus for war crimes. I don't know whether they found him guilty or innocent, but as part of their history textbook, they read journals by Columbus, in which he described the inhabitants of this new land that he found in a very animalistic fashion, like they weren't human beings. Teachers asked the kids to create their own journals. And, and say, you have this life, kids are playing, life's relatively peaceful. You see these ships coming up on shore. How did your life change when those people got off those ships? Wow. And the kids decided after going through that exercise yeah. to put Columbus on trial. And they had a parent who was an actual judge come in with robe and everything and play the role of judge. They got 12 parents, jurors, they had six kids that formed a defense team six kids a prosecution team so it involved they had to do a lot of research because they had to argue both sides and again, i don't know how it came out that's good education in my opinion that's what school could be yeah. reminds me of when i was teaching at la pietra on my u.s history students we decided to put abraham lincoln on trial for suspending habeas corpus during go. the civil war or at the beginning of the civil war and i had a friend who was a circuit court judge and we actually went down and tried it in front of him in his court um and the, the girls that was the most relevant possible moment of their lives that they were arguing and that he honored them by actually rendering a verdict instead of saying well you guys were both wonderful and all of that he actually rendered a verdict right there in front of them so it's that to me that's what school that's could be because that's making school and life one and the same right it's very exciting right it's good stuff that's fantastic yeah. paul singer former head of school at assets thank you so much for this time today thank you josh